Welcome. Ugh, my voice is too loud again. I'm just booming into this digital space. Not even <laughs> airwaves. Yeah. What's that technology called? Radio waves? Oh, radio, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> AM and FM. Yeah. They're going to electrify the whole darn state. <laughs> Welcome to the Green Majority, which we've decided to call Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. For good reason. For the reason that it's the case? Yeah. We've been around since 2006. That's like a long-ass time. I can't do that long. math. Yeah. We, don't try, it's okay. We don't have to do the math. Celine. We haven't spoken to Celine in a while. It's so true. She should come on sometime. She's doing well. She should. I tweeted at her recently. At her. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, like, I responded to one of her tweets in the form of a tweet. I guess you don't really tweet. You tweet at people. That's the only way to tweet, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Um, what do they call that technology? The internet? So, oh, oh, right. This is CIUT 89.5 FM. Or perhaps it is your local community radio station. And we appreciate you. And this is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Erwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren. And that's that's all of my name you're getting today. Welcome to the Green Majority. Thanks for joining us today. What do we have in store for our listeners, David? Tell us. Climate studies, Canada's cl- climate news in terms of policy. We have uh, a new song from the, from Tim Vesley, who created Green Majority's old intro music. It's called Keep It in the Ground. And we have Stefan interviewing... Who do we have Stefan interviewing? I mean, I'm interviewing uh, Mirani Castani, uh, who is a human... I was going to say human designer, but, oh my like, but that obviously sounds ridiculous. There is no limit to what you think can be designed, Stefan. No, no. I will be interviewing Mirjani Kazdani, who is using human-centered design to help build more resilient communities and has a workshop next week about it, but we're talking more generally about the ways that environmental organizations can understand and learn about human-centered design and use that to make both, say, better solutions and to actually have the solutions that they want to propose be uh, understood and taken up by the communities that they are working with. Okay, but what is human-centered design? basically designing with the community that you're working with rather than sort of designing and then bring it to them. It is a process of actually co-designing solutions and understanding the the communities you're working with while during the design rather than sort of designing something and then putting it into it. Wait, wait, what is it that you're actually designing though? Oh, anything. It's mostly about changing the way that designers historically have been very top down where the designer is the expert and they're the one sort of doing the thing versus human-centered design is actually presuming that the community are the experts because they're the ones that you're working for. So the people using the thing are helping design it. Exactly. Much needed from a policy development standpoint. So we're going to do that. But first, uh, Stefan wanted to say something about the court ruling that he was ranting about last week. And it's true. And then I think Lauren wants to talk about... I just wanted to whine yeah. for a bit. If that's okay. Oh, sorry, I didn't. I forgot that. No, it's all right. Um, I'm the one woman on this show. I'm often overlooked. I'm, I'm used to it. <laughs> the, so the briefly, I just wanted to note because I spent so much time being mad about it last week uh, that CN Rail, which the the BC Supreme Court said could privately prosecute the three participants uh, in the 2020 blockade in support of Wet'suwet'en, have decided not to do so, which a little odd. 
given the fact that they worked all the way up to the Supreme Court to be allowed to do so, to ultimately decide not to do it anyways, and definitely still will have a relative, I think, chilling effect on the fact that it means that in, in future cases they could decide to take this up and means that they probably have that power in the future. But at least in this one instance, the absolute worst outcome has not occurred, which is that these three individuals will not be prosecuted, which is good news. By the company. By the company. Well, or by the BC. They had, BC had already decided they were not going to. But you would like some better nature documentaries. Yeah. I would really, really love to sit down over the weekend and unwind with like a, a lovely nature documentary. Because I was seeing recently that like David Attenborough's come out with another one that's like a sister documentary to Blue Planet. So it's called Green Planet. So it's all about plants, I assume. But I'm too nervous to watch it. Because every time I go to sit down and watch a nature documentary, it's like, cool, this is so beautiful, this gorgeous little animal, this gorgeous little plant. And you're just like, there is always, almost like regardless of whether it's the intention of the filmmaker or not, there's still like this underlying sense of foreboding that like, and it's all going away, baby. Like, count your days. This reef is dying. This tree is dying. This baby's dying. And I would just really, really like somebody to make a documentary that I can watch that somehow doesn't trigger those feelings of like climate and ecological dread and doesn't like remind me every waking moment of every day that we're in a series, we're in like an era of like biological collapse. And maybe. What that means is making a documentary about like the one animal that's doing good right now. So if anybody knows of any documentaries about nature, about animals that they came away from recently and they were like, oh, that made me feel really good for literally whatever reason, let us know, please. Tweet at us, get on our Instagram, send us a weird long unhinged email. Um, do whatever you like to let me know what not bummer nature documentary to watch, please. I mean, there has got to be at least a couple animals out there who are going to benefit from this, right? Like, outside of, like, the pine beetle, because I don't want a documentary about how the pine beetle is flourishing. Or, like, the lionfish. Like, yeah, don't tell me about invasive species. Don't, I don't want to hear that, because then that'll just make me think about all the species that they're, like, taking over the territory of. But, like, I don't know. If zooplankton, even though I know they're not on the upswing, but if they happen to miraculously be on the upswing, tell me about that. You know, something, something like that. Isn't didn't it the cor wasn't the coral reef on a nice little upswing last year? I mean, maybe it briefly. stopped bleaching so much. I think right, recovering it's, a bit. It stopped bleaching so much. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. I've I've done the research. Let me tell you, zooplankton. It is rough for them. They're not doing well. Warm temperatures and high acidity. Mm. It's not a fun time for the zooplankton. I want to see a documentary about raccoons. Yeah, they're nailing it. I would love that. I've secretly always wanted a pet raccoon because I, I can't help but feel like with their little tiny hands and their weighty little bodies, like I feel like they'd be really good for hugging and snuggling. Yeah. They'd wrap their little arms around your, their little, their little fingers yeah, around your thumb. Little hands on your face. Oh, yeah. It'd be so nice. So should we go to music or should we go to, straight to the news? I think it depends on how much you plan on cutting. <laughs> Well, everything you said. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably could go to music. That's been 10 minutes. Or even just like a quick little like Short little using music. the music yeah. like. Choo, 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 oh, that's right. Well, we do have the new music intro. So. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to get into some climate news. Shall I? Please do. Do it. 
Excellent. So a recent study published in Advances in Atmospheric Sciences has found that the world's oceans reached their hottest temperatures ever recorded by humans last year. The oceans are currently storing over 90% of the excess heat being trapped by greenhouse gases. And they're also absorbing around 20 to 30% of our CO2 emissions. So the heat's going in there, but also the carbon is going in there. Uh, One of the researchers, John Abraham, quotes his colleague Alexei Mishinov in The Guardian as saying, quote, Our results demonstrated that ocean warming is extensively penetrating deeper layers of the ocean. There was also record heat in 25 countries last year. And a recent review article for the journal Nature has found that close to 70% of all infrastructure built on permafrost is at risk of breakdown by 2050. This includes 120,000 buildings, 40,000 kilometers of road, and 9,500 kilometers of pipeline. Pipeline. The 2021 annual lightning report from the measurement technology company Vesala says that in the high Arctic, the number of lightning strikes in 2021 was almost double the previous nine years combined. Another study in Nature has found that when it comes to natural climate solutions, protecting land is cheaper and better than merely managing it, and both are much cheaper and better than restoring it. This is because we can destroy an ecosystem quickly, but they take a very long time to restore, and the climate crisis does not give us that kind of time. The study reads, quote, We need drastic reductions in emissions to and increased removals from the atmosphere to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Reducing fossil fuel emissions is the most critical action, but natural climate solutions are also required. Natural climate solutions are additional land stewardship actions that capture or reduce greenhouse gas emissions by protecting existing ecosystems, improving the management of working lands, or restoring natural ecosystems. Unlike emergent technologies, such as the direct air capture of carbon dioxide, natural climate solutions are often lower cost, more readily available, and can improve air, soil, and water quality. According to the study, Canada's investment in natural climate solutions is backwards because we're spending 81% of that investment to to restoration in the form of planting 2 billion trees, but only 3% to improved management and 16% to land protection. The study reads, quote, For example, in Canada, only three of the eight restoration solutions have any mitigation potential in 2030. Basically, Nature, the journal, is confirming what we know to be true, which is that one of the best forms of combating climate change or the effects of climate change is through land back operations, right? Because like you said, we're pouring all our money into a stupid tree planting program when in actuality it would be better spent if we were just like preserved the land and handed ownership and management back over to indigenous peoples because they're better at managing those systems than we are anyway. Provided it was guaranteed that they would not uh, do exactly what we're doing. I don't know. But yeah. And I think it also does certainly punch a hole in a lot of the rhetoric that you see within the oil sands where they basically would come out and be like, no, but we'll restore it later. It will be fine. Like that's not working. A, you're, they're not yeah. doing it, but also B. It's not sufficient when you do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, planting a monocrop of 150 pine trees doesn't cut it, unfortunately. 
and you can sort of see why pretty quickly. Like when you walk through places of quote unquote new forests, it is imminently sort of obvious that they are a new forest because of the fact that there's you no know, lack of underbrush, an odd lack of animals. You can sort of feel the fact that it's a monoculture of trees that have been sort of planted and maybe over time, eventually they'll come back to being a much more robust ecosystem. But if you ever need a bit of a reality check in regards to the, if just planting trees is a climate solution, go to some of these forests and, and, and then experience them and then go to a place that has never been destroyed and experience that. The idea that you can somehow restore an old growth forest is not real. Anyway, sorry, we got sidetracked. Back to the news, Dave. The Bank of Canada <clears throat> has produced some models that show that Canada's financial sector, uh, which is people who move money around, will face major shocks and restructuring from shifting priorities due to climate change. But it will be, mu it will be much smoother if we act faster on the crisis. The financial sector is in particular peril when it comes to pricing climate risks. Of course, if the financial sector has problems in pricing climate risk and they lose a bunch of money, that's not, I guess that's not really necessarily bad for those people, right? It's probably bad for us. I mean, I, m their bonuses are attached to things like that, but perhaps, generally sometimes. speaking. Climate litigator Roger Cox, who won a case last year against Royal Dutch Shell, is predicting an avalanche of lawsuits against all sectors, including banks and finance. He recently told the Financial Times, quote, One of the big reasons for the judiciary to exist is to bring balance in society and to protect us from human rights violations from our governments and other large entities that dictate our world and our well-being. And life and well-being, and your right to water and food, will all be violated for eternity if we do not address the climate crisis. <laughs> We're talking about the most widespread human rights violations ever. Canada's Climate Minister Stephen Guibault recently moved back the deadline for input into our 2030 climate plan by a week because of the huge volume of responses. The deadline is now today, January 21st. The Energy Mix reports, quote, citing overwhelming interest from the public, the federal government extended the consultation deadline on its plan to meet a 40 to 45 percent carbon reduction target by 2030, while the fossil industry signaled plans to continue expanding the oil and gas extraction that drives those emissions higher. Even as big companies walk away from the tar sands, smaller companies are still developing them. The Wall Street Journal recently reported, quote, uh, demand for fossil energy remains robust. So long as existing oil fields, no matter their carbon footprint, remain profitable, they are likely to remain in production long after big-name multinational companies walk away. I want to quickly jump back to that banking piece, not so much to ask whether or not, you know, how the bankers are doing, but more so to point out that this conclusion, you know, which is that our financial sector will go will respond poorly uh, to climate action is not a surprise because our financial sector, as we have known and as we've talked about the last couple of years, is one of the most tied into fossil fuels and resource extraction out of almost any developed nations. You know, we're Canada. We're not a huge country. And yet our major banks are some of the biggest supporters of fossil fuel across in the world. 
that means that those of us who are invested in things like our pensions and stuff like that, the Canadian Pension Fund, like a lot of the work that Canadian financial sector does ends up being in some ways backed by the banks as like a safe stock to own. And the banks are still hedging their bets pretty heavily on fossil fuels. And so really like a lot of our financial security of those who you know have pensions as a person who is not above the age of 40, I have never heard of the concept of a pension and I barely understand it. But those who do rely on those things, uh, A, bless you, and B, you're at risk. You're deeply at risk. And it's why some of the most interesting action right now actually going on in divestment is pushing these vest- these larger investment campaigns, you know, like the teachers uh, union, which used to, which is so, the teachers pension union, which is so big, it used to own, I think the Raptors, and like it used to own a major sports team. It was so rich. I, th- I believe they've now sold it. So I don't think that's the case anymore, but that's the size of some of these pension funds. And they are heavily invested and heavily reliant on a lot of these Canadian aspects that are, again, deeply at risk. If we actually tackle tackle climate change, meaning that either we're at risk from climate change or at risk from losing all our money, still better not to burn, but, you know, maybe we should divest quickly. That's reminding me we should totally get um, folks from Shift to come on and talk to us. They're uh, an organization based in based in Canada, I believe, at least all of the employees I know are are Canadian. Um, but they specifically lead, um, divestment campaigns, uh, targeted at least right now targeted at, um, at large pension funds to, to specifically address the issues that you just talked about Stefan. So, uh, you hear it, you heard it here first folks. We're going to try to get somebody from shift on to talk to us because they, know far more about these topics than we ever possibly could. And they'll be able to break it down for us in a way that like makes sense. Um, but I just wanted to really briefly, before we continue on, talk about the, um, that, uh, deadline that you talked about really briefly, David, uh, for, for public input for our 2030 climate plan. Um, in case people hadn't heard, uh, Canada's getting a new energy reduction plan, um, not like a whole new climate plan, but just a, an energy reduction, emissions reduction, and a new emissions reduction plan coming out in the springtime. Um, and there's been a public consultation period that's been open for the month of January. Like David said, it closes today. Um, if you're listening to this show when it airs on Friday. Um, so there's still time to um, provide your input if you'd like to. Um, and then of course, even when that portal closes and you're not specifically like typing in the form, um, we still have several months during which you can like lobby your MP, um, and write to government and maybe organize in your, um, organize your fellow constituents or organize at a larger level to emphasize that we really need this emissions reduction plan to be as ambitious as physically possible. So we can not only meet, but we can exceed our Paris goals. Um, so yeah, we have, I believe that new plan is coming out in March. So we're in kind of this like weird crunch time where we have the next like two max three months to to really, really put some pressure on ECCC, Environment and Climate Change Canada, Stephen Gibo, and um, and our own MPs to try to get this thing to be as strong as physically possible. And I'm really sorry if you guys can hear pots and pans banging around in the background. My partner's making dinner. Thank you.
Welcome back to the Green Majority for our short little segment before Stefan's interview with... Uh, Mariani Kazdani. About uh, designing stuff with the people who are going to use it in mind. Exactly. Lovely. And so just a bit more news here. <clears throat> Export Development Canada, which Stefan and Laura love to talk about, uh, despite appearances, isn't necessarily about to walk away from fossil fuels. Uh, they recently implied they would stop financing oil and gas extraction in other countries, for instance. <clears throat> but similar pledges in the past have led to nothing. And over the past couple of years, we have funded oil and gas more than any G20 nation, even though we are a relatively small country. Matthew McLaren recently argued in the Globe and Mail, quote, it seems more likely that Export Development Canada will pivot to supporting industry efforts to reduce emissions such as carbon capture. This is because Canada stated at COP26 that it would end new direct public support for the international unabated fossil fuel sector by the end of 2022. Uh, direct international support, however, is only a small part of Export Development Canada's overall support for fossil fuels, and the term unabated means that we could still support oil and gas development in other countries, provided we can argue that they may one day employ carbon capture technology, in which case we would call those fossil fuels abated. The Council of Canadian Academies recently commissioned an expert panel to, exp to report on Canada's ability to adapt to climate change, uh, which concluded that we're not doing enough and we don't even have the relevant data to begin doing enough. And finally, the International Energy Agency, in its Canada 2022 uh, Energy Policy Review, has decided to praise Canada's bold efforts. The energy mix quotes Angela Carter, a political scientist from the University of Waterloo, as saying, quote, <clears throat> this is a long quotation from her, it was jarring to read a Canada report that uncritically accepts the government's position that oil production continues to increase for the next 20 years, then leans heavily on technological solutions to decarbonize oil and gas production. It does that, it does that using questionable means like carbon capture, utilization, and storage, and maybe turning renewable assets like mega hydroelectricity toward electrifying oil production, which of course only justifies and fosters expanded oil and gas production. She calls it an avoidance tactic and a misuse of our renewable energies, and we need that energy to decarbonize transportation and secure better efficiencies out of our buildings. This was a chance for the IEA to shine a spotlight on the juxtaposition between Canada's ever-increasing emission reductions targets and its fervent commitment to increase oil and gas production. It's a contradiction, and it's one the International Energy Agency has let stand. If I'm going to give the Trudeau-level government any kudos at all. Just give it, Stefan. It would be that they somehow managed to have the greatest PR team mm. I have ever come across. Because it is amazing how consistently both the like Canada gets consistently praised for like all it does on climate change while being terrible. We somehow managed to have this weird dichotomy but to or juxtaposition or paradox maybe even is the word where on one side we are like per capita one of the worst 
you know, I believe we are, I think that to go back to the article that you mentioned, Export Development Canada, we will actually be joined in a couple of weeks uh, by Julia Levin from Environmental Defense to talk more deeply about this. But in that article, I believe they talk about how Canada is like actually the worst in terms of giving money out to fossil fuels, despite the fact that we are so small. And yet, because we have a $30 price on carbon and we say a lot of good things, it seems like both the climate wonks, you know, from the election, you know, harken back from our anger from six months ago, and the international community are like, well, Canada has done so much. And it's like, what does any of that matter if our emissions continue to rise and we continue to be one of the worst per capita? And yet, can, time and time again, it's this weird idea that having these things in place somehow is a virtue despite nothing actual virtuous coming from it. It's very weird to me. I don't entirely understand it. But to you, Lauren. No, and like I'm 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 trying to think of like a of like a comparable situation or some sort of clever analogy and I and I and I can't come up with anything because you're right like it is it's this it's this bizarre I don't know. It's it's just so I don't know this is so dumb to say it's so two-faced. It's like it's like a mean girl acting like a good person in front of her teacher and like turning around and calling somebody a bitch. Like it it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, um no, one of the things I was happy that we're kind of chatting a little bit about is um, is this piece that came out in the Globe and Mail, which I would I would really encourage people to read. Actually, I'm not always like a huge fan of the Globe, especially because when their stuff is good, half the time it's behind a paywall, and this is not one of those pieces. It's it's seemingly accessible, um, and it's called Canada has committed to halt financing to the oil and gas industry. To understand what that really means, watch for the fine print. It's by Matthew. Mc McLearn, I believe is how that last name is pronounced. And it's this really awesome kind of deep dive into um, how Canada continues to like prop up the oil and gas industry financially, even though we have like pledged time and time again, that we're going to wean ourselves off of it. And we're going to halt those subsidies. And, and the paragraph that really, really stuck out to me um, was um, specifically talking about uh, pledges that were made back in People will remember 2009, the G20 at a summit came together and they said they were going to, um, all these G20 nations were going to phase out or rationalize um, medium-term inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. And that was so exciting and it was a big celebration and people have continued to cite it. And I know that we've continued to, over the years since then, like lobby the government on it, say like, hey, you said you were going to get rid of those inefficient subsidies. Where's the progress on that? Tell us about that. And, and what we find out a couple of paragraphs later um, is that first there was the issue with that like medium term language. It wasn't until 2015 um, that uh, our then environment minister, Catherine McKenna, kind of like fulfilled that commitment, figuring out what that medium term looked like. And she set a 2025 deadline. So that hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> this conversation started back in 2009 and we haven't even made it to that medium term deadline yet. And then that term inefficient, which we know is, is, is like, is like a bit of a, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the term when like something's a weasel word. Yeah. It's kind of sends, sends off some alarm, some alarm bells there, that term inefficient. Um, and according to the department's review, and I believe the department here in question is, is ECCC, Environment and Climate Change Canada, in a 2019 discussion paper identified 36 measures that they considered could be subsidies. And then upon closer inspection and revisiting that, the department, ECCC, found that just four measures actually met that definition of subsidy. And then of those, none of them were deemed to be inefficient. 
<laughs> which the the author of this, the writer of this points out contrasts starkly with the UK's Climate Change Committee's position, where they recently declared it doesn't consider any fossil fuel subsidy to be efficient in the United Kingdom. So it's like, sorry. Um, so like now we finally know <laughs> why no progress has been made on Canada's fossil fuel sort of commitment to phase out because A, they only deem four measures across the whole country, across the whole government to be fossil fuel subsidies. And of those, none of them were inefficient. Anyway, it like, this piece is fantastic. It made me so mad. It didn't necessarily tell me a ton that you like, it's not breaking any ground. I'm sure people that are kind of a little bit um, more studied than I am about some of these nitty gritty things around fossil fuel subsidization would know this. And I mean, I did know that their definition of subsidy was a little bit loosey goosey uh, based on some lobbying I've done in the past, but like to see it laid out like this was just like so maddening and also like really clarifying. Now I finally understand. Yeah. And I think that's why we get so concerned about the words like inefficient or there was unabated abatement. was abatement. Yeah. yeah. All of those, I think, just become ways for governments to make up their own terms. As soon as you add a caveat to fossil fuel subsidy, any caveat whatsoever to the words fossil subsidy afterwards will mean it will be used to not get rid of all fossil fuel subsidies. Like, they're like these loophole words that they yeah. work into the language so they can like easily slip out the back door. Yeah. So like, Whatever. yeah, get rid of all fossil fuel subsidies. That's it. Period. Full stop. I yeah. want to hear words like must, not should, and will, not maybe. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome back to the show. I am here with Mirani Kazdani, who is the founder of Regenerative Space, which helps environmental organizations to create more effective programs and services to build more resilient communities by using behavioral science and design. And we're here a little bit to talk about human design, which is the subject of an upcoming workshop that you're running. But perhaps by way of overview, you can provide a quick introduction to what you're up to. Uh, and then how you got involved in the climate work. And also, welcome. Thank you, Stefan. Hi, everyone. My name is Muriani, and I'm a human-centered designer by trade. Since I was little, I'm always interested in people. So growing up, I like listening to people's stories and experiences and see the world from their perspective. And I get into climate work because I feel a lot of climate anxiety right now. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And Again, for me, the best antidote to climate anxiety is to take actions. And so that's why I started the regenerative space. I want to use my energy and skills to help social environmental organizations to enable resilient communities and a thriving planet using human-centered design. Awesome. And so some folks obviously will have heard about human-centered design, but other people may not have. So can you just give us a quick description of what it is and why it's important? Yeah, for sure. In a nutshell, human-centered design is an approach to problem solving that involves people who will be most impacted by the design throughout the whole process. So 
It's also known as design thinking. I think a lot of people also are familiar with, with that term. It starts really with understanding people and, you know, understanding their motivation, aspiration and needs. It is about understanding why people do what they do and then co-creating solutions with people to produce better outcomes. And it's an important approach because it puts people at the center of a design process. And so this means that we try to, again, understand the problems from their perspective. And then, you know, we understand that people are different, right? People have different values and needs and goals, aspiration. It's important to understand all of this so that we can create effective interventions. And of course, it doesn't just stop at understanding problems. We also are all about co-creating solutions with people. And so solutions that are created with people usually yield better outcomes. And so it creates more buy-in. And also, yeah, it just creates a space to share power between decision makers and people with lived experience. Yeah, I, I find this so interesting that this, because it is an emerging field, I'm sort of surprised constantly by the fact that this concept did not start, you know, like the idea that including people who will be using it as part of the feedback process seems so obvious, but obviously it has not been over time. And so what's your experience with that? Like dealing with maybe old school design, which basically was, I guess, a designer would come out and be like, I think this will work. And then they would never test it. <laughs> this seems kind of silly. Yeah, I know. Right. So traditional design put the designer as the experts. So they know the best, right? They, they study this. They are professionally trained to do this. They go to school to do this. So this, it really put a lot of emphasis on designers knows the best. And of course, like when you mentioned, yeah, isn't it obvious? Like you need to include people in the process. It's not always obvious. Even until today, I can still see proposals created by government agencies. When they say, we want you to help create programs for a specific problem, they don't involve people in it. They think that they will just do a bunch of desktop research looking at different papers and interventions that happen here and there. And then they'll be able to create an idea that could work without even talking to one person who, who has that experience with the problem. Yeah. So you're taking human-centered design and combining it to get something that you've defined as resilient communities. And there is a lot of talk, I think, within the environmental movement about resilient communities and the different ways that, that people could mean by that our systems right now, I think, are brittle. Extreme weather shows that all the time, but so do shocks like COVID, right? Like a whole number of different things have come to make it clear that our communities right now are not resilient in, in the way that I would at least understand it. But I'm curious how you understand resiliency and resilient communities. Yeah, for sure. There are many definitions of resilient communities out there. There are many, many frameworks. And so for me, at the core of it, resilient communities is about helping communities to reduce adapt to and recover from the impact of climate change, and especially for those who are the most vulnerable in our society. So it's important because, like again, as climate crisis continues, we see more extreme weather changes and events and then day-to-day -day challenges uh, that will impact the health and well-being of our communities. So just like this last summer, like we see the, the heat dome hitting BC and so many people die from that, right? And so many people are impacted by that. And so building resiliency is really about working with communities to build strong support system for the health and well-being of people and the environment. So climate change is here. So we really do need to adapt to it almost and recover from it. And so this is why I think resilient communities is really important. Yeah, for sure. And you, you touched on it a little bit here, but I want to dive in a little bit deeper about why you think that human-centered design is so important in the overlap with climate change. 
how do you see these two overlapping and why do you think it's so strikingly important that we do look at people-centered design when dealing with climate and the climate crises? Yeah, for sure. Again, the climate change scene or issue is really broad. It's really big. But at the end of it, it really affects the, the health and well-being of everybody, including people and like non-human species too, right? There's no denying of that. So I guess with community resiliency, what we are really trying is to build a physical, behavioral, social, and environmental well-being in our society. And so a, a healthy and resilient community means that people are socially connected and have access to support systems to face disasters and daily challenges. And this is where human-centered design can add value. So really understanding what motivates people is key to create more engaging programs and interventions that lead to more connected, healthier system and communities, right? So let's take an example of our food system. So we already know climate change is creating drought. We see the decline of water, water-intensive crop. So we might want to look into alternatives like insects or food grown in a lab or something like that. And then the, then the question is, how do we engage community to adapt to this new diet and, and lifestyle? And so this is where it's, it's helpful to look into the barriers of why people don't want to engage and don't want to adopt to this new, this new diet. And some people might think that it's gross to eat all these alternative food. Some others think that it's not ethical. There are many different reasons of why people don't want to engage in this. So with human-centered design, we can really understand the why behind the behaviors. And then we try to create and test interventions that speak to and resonate with those different values and barriers and, and reasons. So let's say if it's about fear, people don't want to try it because they're fearful of new food like that. So how about we give free vouchers for people to get a free meal box delivered to their home to just try it out first. So low barrier, and it's fun and it's exciting to get something in your home. Or to make it into a norm, we can create a cooking competition, for example, and so people can cure recipes from all this new food. And so this is where I think we need to look at program design and program delivery differently. And so do you think that is the place where human-centered design is most important in terms of climate change, like in program delivery, or, or do you see it as a more holistic practice? Yeah, human-centered design for sure has some limitations. So I think the place where it has the most value is in program design, program delivery, because you work directly with community members. I think some people try to use human-centered design for things like system change, and policy change. And I haven't seen that as effective as doing program delivery differently. And I think we just need different tools for that. And also, I think it's important to mention that even the word human-centered is also limiting us to think about just the humans in the problem. And that's really sometimes not helpful because we are almost like prioritizing human needs above other needs. What about society needs in general and also non-human species? So I think we need to be aware of this limitation and we have to always continuously discuss the ethics of this, right? The ethics of, of human-centered design, where the limitation is. That's such an interesting point because imagining what ecosystem-centered design might be, say, for example, is interesting because A, it obviously I think lead again to a, a deeper effort in terms of responding as a designer, but also then how do you get feedback? Like, what do you do? Like human centered design, you talk to people, they tell you stuff. Yeah. Ecosystem design, how are we getting that feedback? And human centered design is in the social science of things. And then usually when we talk about environmental design, it's in the science side of things. 
So we cannot talk to trees. We don't understand the language that trees use to communicate to each other. So it's really hard to apply, again, human-centered design in that traditional sense to trees. That's more science. We can measure carbon. We can measure oxygen. But we can't do interviews. People have motivations and goals. You know, trees, I don't know. So this is why I feel like it's good for one thing. It's good to understand people. Because again, people have a lot of, I guess, like there's a lot of leverage in in understanding people and working with people. But at the same time, we also have to be aware of the limitation of just prioritizing people's needs. Right. That makes sense. And so for organizations working on climate issues, do you have any sort of tips or how would you recommend organizations use human-centered design in their work? I think the core message of human-centered design is really about designing with people rather than for people. I have seen a lot of programs out there where the intention is good, right? So the intention is to build awareness and disseminate knowledge and information, but it's really enough to change behaviors. It's really enough to create that change that we want. And so information is just the first step of it. So I really encourage climate organizations and environmental organizations to look into human-centered design to really understand what motivates people and what do they value and how do we encourage people to adopt changes. Research has shown that designing with people helps to increase engagement and buy-in, and that will lead to better results and finally lead to more resilient communities. And I think that's what we want. Yeah, it strikes me as interesting that this process sort of inherently feels like sitting in the messy middle or sitting in why things might have failed or the ways which things might have failed, which often I think organizations and people want to avoid because they just don't want to avoid feeling like they failed. But in this process of engaging people, finding out what they want and why they want those things, and then what would be a barrier from doing it, that process alone is in some ways building a community, which therefore is in my understanding, one of the central aspects of a resilient community. So in some ways, and correct me if I'm wrong, using a human-centered design approach in your program planning is an inherent tool to begin building resilient community because you're already bringing members of a particular community together to ask them these kind of questions. But in that process, they're also then meeting you and each other and ideally beginning those other steps that might lead to greater resilience gains, almost absent of the program that ends up getting delivered. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I have seen environmental organizations and other organizations, they have a lot of surveys sent out. So things like that, sessions and meetings and workshops, you know, I guess for me, that's that's a great step. Let's talk more to people. Let's engage people in the process. And people are really the drivers of change, if you think about it. And I think, you know, what makes it more rigorous is to dive deeper into that. I guess for me, let's go beyond group meetings and let's discover gaps between what people say and what they do. And let's spend more time with people in their context, understand problems from their own perspective. So it's not just about an hour of interview and that's it. Let's go deeper into it and let's find more insights from people that we try to serve. Awesome. And before we dive into sort of the last couple of questions, I'm curious, do you have any other examples of what you've seen as a really good human-centered design approach taken within climate? Is there anything that sort of stands out to you? Like, Yeah, so there are many, many examples out there when it comes to using human-centered design for climate issues. And so because we're in Toronto, one example would be the Zero Waste Initiative in this building called Mayfair on Green. And they don't call it human-centered design necessarily, but if you look at the approach, is very 
human-centered design. Like the way that the superintendent like changed the, the system for people to deposit their organic waste. So like it creates the lowest barrier based on people's lifestyle. So they understand that it's a lot of work and it's very icky for people. They said that to get their green bean down the stairs, through the elevator, it's dripping, it's gross, right? People don't want to do it. So that's the barrier. And they just changed the, the chute system so that instead of taking garbage, it takes organic waste. And it makes a huge, huge difference. And they also create their own library in the building where people donate books or throw away books and it's all collected there and people can take whatever they need and they create their own free store. So things like that. So again, it, it's a program that is created based on understanding uh, people's motivation and barriers. And I think that works really great. Awesome. It's funny. I don't know if long-time listeners of the show will know this, or perhaps no one on the listening to the show know this, but I spent four years running a free store for student family housing at U of T many, many years ago now. But I honestly think free stores as a general rule within apartment buildings would be a game changer in terms of ability for communities to become a more resilient, gives them places to connect with each other, and also as an anti-waste program. Honestly, they're great. More people should have free stores is my hot take. But so moving on to our last two questions. The first one is you reference it near the beginning and it's something I've been asking a lot of people, which is about climate anxiety, which is you've now said you do experience it just a little bit. So what do you do to combat it? I do experience it. And some days I just, I ask myself, does it really matter what I do? You know, am I really making any difference? So my strategy to combat it is to first take care of myself. So that means that I get enough rest, I do exercise, I turn off my devices and just not check the news or social media or anything like that. And then I also focus on taking actions. And so I really believe that taking actions is the, the most effective antidote to despair. So taking even small actions like voting my dollar and donating to environmental organizations that I believe in and I support or helping my communities in small ways. And finally, I remind myself that I also have limits and I alone cannot save the world. Yeah, so when I reach my limits, I tell myself I've done enough for today. Let's continue tomorrow. Amazing. And so speaking of tomorrow, or not actually tomorrow, next week, you do have uh, an upcoming webinar that you're running about all these topics. So if people learned from this and they're like, man, I would love to learn more, there is a way they can do that. Can you tell us what that will cover, how folks can learn about it? We will drop the link in the show notes. So if any folks look that way, but also if there's any other way, it's really cool. And yeah, how can folks keep up with your work? Yes. So the workshop that I'm doing will be covering topics that we just talked about. So using human-centered design and behavior science to create better programs and more effective programs, right? So you can find out more about it on my website. And so it's regenerativespace.design. And you can sign up there as well. And to learn more about my work, you can find me on LinkedIn, or you can also sign up for my newsletter on the website as well. I send newsletter every month. So yeah, I hope that you can be there. And I, I look forward to sharing more with you about this topic. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Mirani Kazdani, so great to have you on. And thank you so much for joining us and talking about human-centered design. But yeah, any last word? So the biggest reward for me when I do my work is to hear from people that they are really inspired by this and they are inspired to take meaningful actions to make change. 
And so for me, it's really, really, really important to know that we are all in this together and no one person can do it alone. So, you know, community is very important for me. And so I would love to see that more when we approach different problems and be more collaborative with each other and work with each other. So, yeah, that's my last words. And reach out anytime. Like, I would love to connect with like-minded folks out there. I'm on LinkedIn. You can also reach out to me on my website. But yeah, I would love to hear from you.